0: Hi, I'm Jonathan.
1: And hi, I'm Omar, and we're developing new technologies to edit light and cure genetic disease.
0: What if you could program a cell directly to fight cancer? What if you could solve the 7,000 different genetic diseases currently plaguing our species? What if you could increase the human lifespan to 100 years, to 150, to 200 years and beyond with gene therapy and gene editing? Well, these types of science fiction ideas are now reality thanks to my guests. Today, joining me on the Beat the Often Path podcast, we have Omar Abu Daya and Jonathan Gutenberg, creators of the Abu Gut Lab at MIT. These folks are from little known institutions of MIT and with their advanced degrees from a place you might have heard of called Harvard. So I'm just thrilled and deeply honored that they're joining an ignoramus such as myself today to share what is truly cutting edge, groundbreaking technology with incredible implications for defeating cancer and a wide range of other diseases. It just doesn't get more cool than this. So I hope you will tune in to this episode and thank you for joining me on the Beat the Off Path podcast. All right. Well, welcome to the show, guys. Now, I consider myself a pretty smart person because uh, when I microwave frozen foods, I'm able to set it to the 50% power setting to better <laughs> de my food. Um, so, you know, I've looked at your bios and, you know, we we're talking about uh, MIT, Harvard, various fellows, <laughs> all of these things. So, um you know, I, I would like to say that we're intellectual equals here, but I know that that is absolutely not the case with me being clearly the smarter of the group. Um, but can you explain to me a little bit about what it is that you two have been up to and why it's so relevant?
2: Yeah. So, you know, right now, medicine is kind of going through a lot of changes with new technologies. And in the past, many people who are born with genetic disease have treatments, but it was impossible to actually go into their genomes and fix that letter or problem in their genome that led to that disease. There were no cures available. And now we're seeing technologies that are truly programmable, that allow us to program those technologies to go into the genome, which is really 3 billion letters in all of your cells, and be able to actually change any errors that, you know, lead to this specific disease and then actually cure it. And so it's really, that's what we're starting to see now. And the technology that's gotten the most coverage that does that called CRISPR, this genome editing technology, is really uh, the first wave of a whole slew of different programmable medicines. So in our lab at MIT, um, we work together to develop new programmable medicines that we hope someday will be therapies for genetic disease, for other common diseases like cancer, or cardiovascular disease, and enable a new wave of treatments and medicines that can really help alleviate a lot of the suffering that people have from many of the health problems that come
1: from these causes.
0: Incredible. So did, did one or both of you just watch the movie Gattaca and then just say, we want to make that real?
1: Well, you know, uh, I think we both have seen that, that movie uh, growing up, and obviously, I've rewatched it over the years. I would say, I think there's things to inspire from that movie, and obviously, things that uh, you want to probably avoid, like <laughs> eugenics undertones. But I think, uh, I think in general, I mean, it, it was definitely inspiring, all the Jurassic Park and all these movies that came out at the time about, like, you know, how can we actually, you know, start to understand what it is that makes up all life, right? Like the human genome was first drafted in the late 90s, right? And um, along with these movies, it was tantalizing to think about like how you could change that and uh, not just use it to treat disease, but study disease and um, really uh, maybe make life better. So I definitely think there's an aspect of popular, (laughs) like science fiction here um, in all of this work.
2: Basically, whenever we have a disagreement in the lab, we have to swim as far as we can out from the shore yeah, exactly. until we, you know, get tired. And so whoever craps out first, exactly. Yeah.
0: Don't tell don't, anybody, but I'm secretly right-handed. No. <laughs> only, only the <laughs> janitor ridiculous. knows for sure. Uh, <laughs> But I think you were talking about science and science fiction and never, especially in this era, have the two been more blurred. And I think also to some extent there's a segment of the population that maligns or doesn't believe in science or especially this kind of scientific advancement. I'm not one of that group. I think it's incredible and I'm very fascinated by the possibilities with the future. But how do you feel about the merging of science and science fiction? Like what do you think the possibilities are from where you stand today in terms of eradicating certain subsets of genetic diseases, for example?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that science fiction is a great, you know, path line to like what could be possible. And so thinking about different ways that, you know, in different pieces of work that genetic disease is cured, or the disease is diagnosed, the tricorder often comes up, you know, from that Star Trek inspiration. Um, right. That, you know, it, it's nice to imagine what's possible because then it actually can motivate people to work towards that. And so, in the cases of genetic diseases, there are, you know, about 7,000 genetic diseases um, that are due to you know, inborn errors in people's genomes. Um, and there may be a day, some off, you know, in the future, not, but not too far in the future, where we can develop medicines uh, either you know, all upfront or on a personalized basis where you get your genome sequence and then they can develop the corresponding medicine to treat that um, for many of these drastic diseases. Uh, and it, it's also very inspiring because you, you see therapies that aren't necessarily just cures but very effective treatments that are coming up in, in tandem. For example, cystic fibrosis, there are, are very, very effective treatments for a large population that, you know, are coming up in tandem with these other genome editing approaches. So it's really exciting to watch this trajectory and realize, yeah, we might be able to make cool science fiction-like things. It also inspires people. You know, there are people tinkering around trying to make glowing plants or, uh, you know, have bacteria create biofuels. And so a lot of that, you know, people can just get inspiration from, you know, what has been proposed and you previously thought to be impossible
0: was a glowing plant somebody's inspiration after they went to burning man (laughs) what's the (laughs) significance of a plant that glows
2: yeah probably actually
0: (laughs) probably actually uh, okay, so you know, CRISPR, for many people, myself included, CRISPR is what you think of with a vegetable CRISPR in the refrigerator, something that you don't know how to use, but you realize that you probably should. What is CRISPR, and why is that so significant?
1: So, yeah, CRISPR uh, actually describes a naturally occurring system that originates from uh, bacteria and archaea and you know basically other single-celled organisms, uh, and so... Uh, It's interesting because uh, it took a really long time to understand what CRISPR was. I think as we started sequencing more and more life in the the 90s, starting with the genome and people started sequencing all sorts of bacteria and environmental samples, we started collecting this repository of genome information. And one thing people quickly noticed, I think the first observation was actually in the late 80s and people started seeing it more in the 90s, was that bacteria had these really weird repetitive sequences in their genomes. And no one really knew what they were, but it took the sequencing revolution of the late 90s and early 2000s to basically start noticing that the the repeat sequences, in fact, the sequences between the repeats that were in bacteria were starting to show up in the viruses that affect bacteria. And people thought that was really curious that there was this connection between bacteria and viruses. And I think in one paper, someone even remarked, well, maybe this could be some sort of immune system in bacteria uh, and we're seeing marks of previous infections, uh, sort of uh, scarring into the bacterial genome. And lo well, and behold, that early, yeah, that sort of early prediction turned out to actually be true. People showed really? that when bacteria were infected, the surviving ones could store pieces of their infections in their genomes, and those pieces would actually be expressed to then fight against future infections. And they actually were used to cut up the viruses. if They ever showed their face again, basically. Um, so was, it was like it was the Seven Eleven
0: that said, "Don't let this person in the store."
1: Exactly. <laughs> um, and so like humans have a version of this, uh, what's called adaptive immune, uh, systems. So, uh, we have antibodies, right? And when we get infected, the hope is we have some sort of antibody recognition. Uh, if we do, then we can you know, overcome infection and then we store those antibodies for future use. Right. That's literally what CRISPR is, but just a different mechanism. Instead of proteins like antibodies, recognizing proteins, of viruses, it's a system to actually recognize the DNA or RNA of a virus and cut it up. Um, and the really interesting insight was, you know, there was Jennifer Doudna and Feng Zing, where you know where we did our PhDs with him. You know, in the, basically around 2012, uh, they both published papers showing that they realized that this system, instead of you know being used to programmably recognize viruses, it could be reprogrammed to other sequences like the human genome. And in fact, it could be redirected to cut the human genome and rewrite it for actual genome editing. And so. Um, it's so this classic example of taking something that exists in nature, understanding how it works for like 20 years, and thinking, well, how can we make that useful for humans? How can we save lives? Um, and so on. And, um, that's, you know, now, now here we are today again, 10 years later with, you know, there's probably like 100 CRISPR companies now, everyone's trying to use it to, you know, make new drugs, engineer plants to make them more resilient or give them better properties, people are trying to you know, use them to... Know, treat bacterial infections or make better yogurts and foods. Um, it's, it's really remarkable what explosion has happened uh, from this basic science work.
0: So you can okay. take this uh, genome and you can inject brain-controlling microchips funded by Bill Gates. That's your primary objective, right?
1: I'll let Jonathan take that one. 100%.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. See, there's a reason people don't trust uh, scientists.
2: Yeah. I mean, but it is, um, you know, really amazing that we have these programmable medicines and, you know, one of these things like with the vaccine, you know, we can program cells to make a spike protein because we can program cells to make proteins that enter the genome. And this is where we're going with biology where it's not like, okay, we found some random, you know, back in the like 1920s, Oh, I had this random thing growing on a Petri dish and makes this thing called penicillin. I'm lucky. Well, luck only strikes so many times. We need to, if we really want to make the medicines against, the diseases that you know plague everybody, whether they're cardiovascular disease, neurodegeneration, cancer, you know, we need the ability to program biologies just like we program computers. And part of that is going in and using the code of life to make proteins, to edit genomes, to target specific cells, to do things that we want. And that's going to be the really powerful layer of medicines in the future. Yeah.
0: You know, I've read articles that have suggested that a lot of the reasons that people die, uh, you know, instead of just thinking it, of it as an inevitable thing, it's a some people refer to it as a series of preventable things. Do you think that that is the case? And do you think that there's an upper limit to the human lifespan? Some people say 150 years is just an upper limit. Do you think that there is uh, that this technology has a potential to indefinitely or, you know, create immortal beings or at least 200 years? Like what what is the upper bound here? <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good question. I, you know, I think there's two questions here, but I'll take the second one first. Mm-hmm. Like, can CRISPR be used for expanding human life? I mean, I think, I think there's some possibilities for it. Like maybe we find genetic variants, right. Um, that, you know, are in longer lived people and you can install those variants in people and get some benefit. And I think you're seeing some examples of this. For example, there are mutations that give people really low cholesterol or fat levels and um, that naturally occur in certain populations, like variants really a PCSK9, that knock that protein out, and they never get like metabolic, like like fat or cholesterol issues. Um, in some ways, that's like a longevity-promoting intervention. If you install that mutation, people who's actually from to do this called um That you know it's possible they could live longer because they won't get all the issues that you do with fat buildup, atherosclerosis, heart attacks, right? Um, so I think there are some uses for CRISPR, but do I think? That you know, living forever will be solved like this. I think there's probably other technologies and other approaches that can be useful there. And so the question is like, what would you want to do to achieve that? I think there's still a lot more biology that's needed, like understanding why it is that people age. Um, you know, right now a lot of the common things in aging are you know, heart attacks or vascular disease, strokes, you know, um, you know neural, uh, you know, brain degeneration, which is a really, um, you know, tough one. So I, you know the question is like, if you solve those diseases, you know, how much longer can you live? And then like, what happens right after that, right? Like, uh, you know, are there new diseases we can't even think of today if you live to like 130, 140 years old, for example, then hit you, right? Like that's really like-
0: I love that idea.
1: Yeah, right. And so I I think theoretically you probably could live forever. I mean, uh, but I think, you know, it's gonna, it's not like there's one solution fits all. I think it's gonna be these iterative changes probably, break one barrier, like what's next. And um, you know, one thing that's interesting is you know the human germline, right? If you think about that, that's you know like the cells that you, you know, your make sperm or you know your uh, uh you know egg cells for for women. Um that has been like propagated for you know tens of thousands of years or even longer, right? If you think about it, like you know that cell is able to produce a cell that you know creates a fertilized egg and then that creates a human and they have you know uh, you know cells that are able to produce a new human, right? And so that's there's rejuvenation that's happening there. Otherwise, that that you know passing down of tens of thousands of years of humans wouldn't be possible. And I think you know a lot of people are trying to understand like what are the epigenetic or reprogramming that's happening in cells of, of those types to, to understand aging. And I think that's a really interesting um. Uh, area to, to look at as well but yeah but to answer your question I think there's not going to be one size fits all um, and another thing you have to think about is while you can make people live longer is the quality of life also good And so I think that's going to be the also parallel challenge as you well, maybe you solve cardiovascular problems and brain degeneration but like how do you solve like frailty or muscle degeneration or wrinkling of the skin right um, so there's definitely not going to be I think uh, you know, a solution that solves all of those you know, a lot of things you have to build up
0: Time. so. Sure. So, if we go back to our Gattaca example, I think they did it at the embryo stage, right, pre-birth. Where do you see this these advancements taking place? Is it before a human is born? Is it medicine that will be administered after somebody is an adult? Or when is this most effective?
2: So, I think as a field in genome editing and gene therapies, we're currently really thinking about how can we affect the somatic cells in your body. So, in your body, you know, from a really abstract perspective, you have your somatic cells and your germline. And as Omar mentioned, your germline is your gametes, your eggs and your sperm that will go on for future generations. The somatic cells is everything else. So uh, from a therapeutic perspective, it's really easy to say, well, so somebody has, you know, a disease, let's say it's a mutation in their liver that causes alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiencies, Disease um, that causes you to have a deficiency of alpha one antitrypsin, and it can affect your liver, your lung. To go in and change that in someone's liver to correct that uh, is a kind of very easy concept. It's like a medicine; it's permanent, um, and we cure them for life. But if, let's say, you know, ten, hundred years down the line, we say, okay, the actual issue is if you make this change you have this other compensatory issue somewhere else in your genome, which in the case case of alpha one may not be the case, but that could be a potential uh, concept, or maybe there's some off target editing that makes some change that just edits a cell. What we don't want is that to be necessarily passed down throughout the human evolution through the germline. And there is currently, I would say uh, ongoing discussions of, you know, when it would be appropriate to, if ever uh, edit the germline, there was some journal I'm editing done um, by a scientist in China um, several years ago, uh, without the uh, endorsement of the international community. That was uh, certainly premature. Um, yeah. So right now, we're really thinking about if you have someone who's currently afflicted by a disease, how do you cure them of that disease in the future? I think with you know careful thought and you know considerations of the ethics and the implications at the societal level and at the actual technical level because um, it is actually very hard to in some cases to edit uh, a, a human embryo even you know in a lab technically um, it may arise but I think that right now as a there's already enough diseases um, that you know are difficult to treat or impossible to treat in you know existing people so we're focusing primarily right now on somatic cell editing
0: that's it's so cool, so when we talk about cancer, I mean obviously it's been the long standing dream of humans to make any kind of breakthrough when it comes to cancer. How do you see this as being a potential defeat of cancer if that's possible? yeah,
1: yeah. so okay well <laughs> i mean you you're saying like what are the potential like ways to use this for cancer? Yes. Yeah, I mean I think I think there's a couple different areas you can you can take this. So one, I mean, obviously I think there's huge potential for just understanding tumors. Like there's been really cool work on using genome editing tools and like really high throughput and in parallel to of all the genes and networks inside a cell, really pinpoint like how two hundred different tumors might like be going awry, like what those mechanisms are, and then can we drug those mechanisms and People done this not just for like normal tumor development, but also for resistance to common drugs. And there's actually literally companies that are focused on this, like KSQ Therapeutics. I think that's one area. I think the other is you could theoretically use genome editing tools to go after cancer mutations, like you know sense a mutation, cut you know important genes out, and treat the tumor. I think that's harder. Um, I I actually think in general gene therapy and getting tools for cancer treatment directly are harder because the difference between treating it like a genetic disease and a tumor is a tumor you have to get every single cell. For genetic disease, right, like, you know, you're missing a protein, maybe I only need like 1% correction, now you have enough of that protein to survive. But if I only got rid of 1% of your cancer cells, you would still have the cancer. If I got rid of 99.99% of your cancer cells there's a good chance that cancer might come back. But um, so you have this problem where you really have to get it into every single cell, and that's hard. And that's not a problem necessarily with gene editing technologies. It's a problem with our current ability to deliver these technologies inside the body to different cell types. And that's a, that's it's called, you know, those are delivery technologies and it's a delivery problem that is not solved. So, you know, just to give a little perspective on this, you know, part of the reason chemotherapies are so bad is you have like these really toxic compounds, right. and to make sure you get every single cell, you're dosing them pretty high, and so they're yeah. going to hit like your normal cells. And the idea is you you'll take that hit because the hope is you'll obliterate every single cancer cell, um, right? And and that's why those therapies you know can kind of work. With gene editing, it's like you know <laughs> I, I don't think you want to dose a person so high that like you're getting permanent genetic modifications every. You know, cell in the body that could be really bad for you, um, it, the risk is, the risk tolerance there is even higher. And even then, you're probably not going to get any cancer cell. Um, so, you know, that's why the approach has been more using these tools to understand the cancers and then making more traditional drugs um, based on those insights.
0: Do you think as a quick side note that future generations will look on chemotherapy the way we look on leeches now as just this insane
1: concept? Absolutely. I think it's, well, you know, it's, it's been incredibly successful, but I think it obviously is one of those things that the minute we can replace it, it'll look probably, you know, like just an ancient way of treating a disease given all the negative side effects. Yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, leeches may not be the best analog, but maybe amputation where, you know, you can actually, you know, save someone's life, but it's pretty grisly.
1: Um, I see what you're and saying. Yeah. so,
2: you know, but you know, in medicine, you can only a physician can only treat using the tools that they have. Right. And you know, if you have to go through chemotherapy when the alternative is you know, death, then you're going to choose chemotherapy. But this is why we need to you know continually iterating and making better medicines and improving upon that. So yeah, hopefully we won't have any you know treatments of that level of burden to the patient in the future. Yeah,
0: that would be incredible. And we talk about the, the difference in the beginning between you know science fiction and science, but there's also, especially in this realm, I would say that there's a lot of d- a difference between science and pseudoscience, especially around the term gene therapy. There's a lot of People of questionable ethics operating in the space also promising longevity. There's a number of scams out there. or People have proven to be scams or say like, hey, I'm, I'm 50 years old, but I actually have the kidney of a 30 year old. It's like, how do you prove that? Right. Um, how do we separate as people who aren't educated and aren't knee deep in these problems every day? The pseudoscience from the actual science and the promise of these techniques.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's difficult because, you know, sometimes science can seem like almost, you know, sci-fi or pseudoscientific. If you told people, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, you know, in the future, you'll be able to treat cancer by taking some of your cells, editing them and putting a genetic program into them so it targets cancer, and then putting that back into someone, they would say, well, that seems just crazy. but the thing about, you know, science that separates it from pseudoscience is that you have data and you have mechanism where you can one say if I do like a random controlled trial where I can take half of the people and treat them with, you know, this thing and half the other people treat them with a the comparator or with the placebo, I can actually see the change. And then I know also that there are intermediates. There's biology there. Why that's happening? It's not just that they're getting better. It's that you know, there this cell is secreting this thing. And I can measure that, and so everything makes sense with everything we've tested in the labs. So it matches a hypothesis, a falsifiable hypothesis. That is really useful. So that's the gold standard. I think the real question comes into play when you deal with the ethics of how stringent do you want to be. Um, where, you know, if we say we have to understand everything, we have to know, we, you know, then you can actually potentially block many cures that are on the threshold. But, you know, I think that this is a debate with, for example, um, administrative, like, groups like the FDA, how stringent should they be? You know, should they allow certain situations where there's beneficial use for people who are really sick? Um, And it's an ongoing debate. Um, There are certain cases that it's probably excusable, but you don't want to undermine the confidence in the overall, you know, biotechnology and medical industry um, as a whole. And then of course there will be people on the sidelines who will just advertise, yeah, you know, I'll, you know, sell you snake oil. It's very hard to totally eliminate that. And especially, you know, you can't control stuff in the world. There are clinics, you know, in many places outside of the United States that will offer certain stem cell treatments that have no basis really in science. So you have to be skeptical. um, But I will say for patients who are looking for hope, it's sometimes hard to be skeptical because you want to latch on to hope. So um, it it can be very difficult for for people in times of crisis. Um, And from a privileged position when we're not patients, it's easier said than done. Um, But at the end of the day, the scientific literature sticking to that and understanding that is always a good place to start and you know you can always do kind of a gut check does this make sense do we understand why this works and do other qualified people understand how that works so that's generally the metric that we use to evaluate things yeah
0: Well, I'm definitely a big believer in treating the root cause of something versus the symptoms. I think it's more efficient in general, of course, Um, with a lot of this. I mean, it's no secret that some of the people who are most aggressively promoting and investing into immortality ideas are the billionaires and the wealthiest among us. You know, Peter Thiel, all of uh, Larry Ellison, they're in the news constantly pursuing these kinds of technologies. To what extent do you think that these these types of ideas, if they are successful in the next 10, 20 years, there's going to be a gap in terms of who can afford treatment? Is this going to be something that only the ultra-wealthy can benefit from, or that everybody might be able to benefit from?
1: Uh, I think that's a tough question. I mean, I think one of the issues with all cell therapies is the development uh, timelines are long, and uh, Manufacturing can be expensive, and that's where you start seeing like these you know, million dollar price tags for these therapies or two million dollar price tags. And I think there's a problem that's uh you know society's gonna have to deal with, which is like how do we pay for these things? You know, our current insurance systems are not necessarily set up for this. Uh, you know, people generally don't have one insurer their entire lives, right? So their cost is kind of distributed across a lot of different Providers, but when you know when you're like now, you have to pay two million dollars for this one-time thing. You know the argument of well, you know it's cheaper than their lifetime cost. Actually, doesn't really work when you know there's not one provider that's taking on the entire probably lifetime cost, right? And so we're gonna have to think about you know how those things um, actually do get paid for, or we have to think about how do we actually drop uh, the cost of these things. And um, I think one. You know, uh, interesting thing to think about is part of the problem is for a lot of these gene, uh, like, for example, gene therapies, there's not that many patients. So if you're only 10,000 people or 50,000 people, you end up having to have a more expensive drug because you're trying to recoup the cost. But like, you know, when you start thinking maybe about things like aging, where every single person on the planet might want to take it, you can kind of think about at, at those economies of scale, those costs actually do end up dropping... And uh are not as bad. So there's another thing to think about here. You think about like, you know, these larger scale things, especially, you know, where there huge inequities, right? In terms of like people who can live longer or whatnot. I do have some hope, just given the scale of that, that I don't think it would be cost prohibitive. Um but then you know, just to give hope on the technology side, I think there's a lot of people, including our own lab, trying to think about how do we actually use innovation to drop the cost of these things. How do we engineer Better vectors that are cheaper, better delivery solutions that are easier manufacture. You have some lines that can produce these things at much higher amounts so that you know you can drop the cost. So I think um, biomanufacturing is such an interesting space um because there's such high um impact from even small you know improvements. Like you could make something that is made made more efficiently by 30%, and you know, you could be saving tens of millions of dollars on uh, you know, of costs on the you know the front end. So um, I think that's also an interesting space uh, to make these things more accessible.
0: Absolutely. And with all of these things, with all health care matters, the the concept of cost is, is sort of ever-present. And also it's, you know, when are you saving a life versus when are you unnecessarily prolonging a life? For example, if somebody who's 98 says, I want this treatment and I want it to cost $2 million, you know, do we say, hey, you're old enough? It's different. Whereas, you know, a four-year-old, it might be more justifiable. I mean, not that I'm expecting you to have the, that kind of answer here, but... Uh, there always seems to be trade-offs, and when it comes to insurance money and all of those types of things, it's it's a very difficult question to say, okay, how much do we spend on whom and when, and yeah. what is the limit? Yeah. When is when is when have we done enough for somebody?
2: It's difficult to kind of go, you know, into some of these questions sometimes because it's like, how do we like actually do actuarial like oh, assigning value to people's lives right. or do that choice? But I mean, there are metrics like quality-adjusted life years where you can basically say, you know, if I intervened uh, when like that four-year-old um, was four, and I you know, save their life and they could go on and be a productive member of society and have like an impact there and live to a ripe old age. Um, that's very valuable both to them and their families and society versus, you know, if someone is, you know, in much, much later age and you're extending their life for only a couple of years, what's the impact there? And then also, yeah, it's not just number of years but it's the quality of those years and actually going back to the longevity aspect there's becoming i think a much greater concept of um health span versus lifespan so you want to have live a long time you want to live well and so these are intricately connected so the goal really is you know how do you develop the most you know widely impactful therapies that can help as many people live as long and as well as possible um and so and that's, I think the promise of a lot of these new medicines is or diseases that you know we had no treatment for, now we can cure those and then have long healthy lives.
0: Yeah, and I think of course, intuitively we all, at least certainly I do, I feel that this is progress, and I think I have the same spirit of enthusiasm that I'm sure you do in your work. Uh, Every day, Uh, Omar. I know you've been working on aging and studying that for a very long time, based on my research of you. And in in researching aging and anti-aging and a lot of the new techniques, one thing that's come up over and over again is this idea of telomeres and telomerase and cell death and that kind of thing. Is there any? Is that sort of related to stuff that you're working on? Is that a, a theory that you believe in, or have you heard of that?
1: Um. Yeah, so I you know I think there's many different axes of aging. So the telomere is, you know, I think is one axis a lot of uh, people have been working on. Um, I think we're trying to take a more mechanism independent view. So you know, our approach is, you know, can we understand actually how to reprogram cells uh, to to make them look younger? And part of that is like can we study them at their level? How young cells differ from old cells? That can the proteins are expressed, RNAs are expressed, how the genome is folded. Um, And then can we actually figure out where the exact right things to express to rejuvenate them? And there's been some work already done in this, like people have shown Yamanaka factors, which can stem cells from like skin cells, right? And used for actually reversing the clock on cells by expressing them at uh, short periods of time. So you don't make someone's skin turn into stem cells, but if you express them for a short period of time, (laughs) Uh, the idea is that hopefully you, you refer them back in, enough that they're, they look younger and maybe that reset certain aspects of the cell to, you know, make telomeres longer or get rid of protein aggregation or rejuvenate the mitochondria, right? But the idea is that we can find more general ways to, to sort of reprogram the cell state, all the different factors that aging can come along with that, not just, you know, focusing on the telomeres. Um, so we've been doing a lot of that in our group, focusing on different tissues, trying to understand you know why we came be on work on certain issues and on others, um, and trying to find new ways of doing this. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's really the early days of what people are calling partial reprogramming, um, but I think there's a lot of interesting promise in that direction.
0: So cool. I mean, it's just it's mind blowing, truthfully. How long have each of you been working on this individually?
2: Well, I would say we've been working in the genome editing, cell therapy somewhat longevity space, you know, for over a decade now. I mean, we've actually been working together for almost as long, um, where basically you you can see the emergence of these technologies um, that really started coming out in like the early 2010s, um, right when we were kind of starting our our PhDs. Um, And you can see waves of different technologies and different hypotheses. Aging is a concrete example where telomeres, you know, were like of high popularity, I would say, you know, in the 90s and the 2000s, and then other concepts like the idea that there are these bad cells, that these senescent cells that you want to be able to kill um, via Senolytics gained a lot of popularity and now there's partially programming, as Omar mentioned. Um, so I think as we learn more and more about biology, about the biology of aging, and how we have more and more different tools that can then address these problems, will be able to zone farther and farther in on this problem but it's a hard problem you know it's, it's one of the most difficult problems in biology i would say where it's not even well defined what is aging um, at a molecular level there are still kind of diverse hypotheses about that so it's you know it's important that we have the tools and the technologies to explore that as well as the more hypotheses and research about the basic biology of you know cellular aging and organismal aging
0: uh, when did you first get on to this concept and what made you interested in this going back to the early days? And I guess, when did you know, either separately or together, that this would be your life's work or at least the majority of your life would be spent working on this problem?
1: I mean, it's, it's a good question. I think uh, <laughs> a lot of it has not been like a clean, you know, cut narrative, I would say. I and mean, you know, I... I come from a household of engineers, both my mom was electrical engineer, and my dad was a civil engineer. Um, so I always grew up around sort of the concept of like tinkering and you know, uh, solving problems, you know, my like, dad had a like, bridge design software on our computer that I would play around with and Like, play around the different trust designs and see if like, uh, you know, a truck payload can survive on the bridge, right? Like, stuff like that, uh, making concrete canoes that float in water. Um, and so I've always been interested in engineering and how to make, you know, uh, that approach to make the world better. Um, but for me, I found that stuff way too boring. It didn't feel like that's where innovation was happening today, uh, you know, mechanical, you know, electrical engineering. It's like, felt like that was like 100 years ago. It was like super exciting times. And now, like it's how to slow wrap a million Twinkies
0: say, in a assembly
1: <laughs> line. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, I was, I was trying to figure out, you know what excited me the most and for me like growing up again like, these movies about gene editing and, you know the human genome coming out as a kid it seemed like that was like the super sci-fi thing of like you know trying to study like how you know why diseases happen and how to you know augment human abilities and so you know I thought I actually thought about going to med school as an undergrad like becoming a doctor um, but at the same time being undergrad at MIT like I was in the lab. Uh, they opened the labs for undergrads, and so I was like in the lab, and I thought that was really cool like uh, playing around with nanoparticle and trying to, you know, birds. And So I didn't really decide what to do, and so I actually was like, screw it, I'll do both. And so I actually went to the MD-PhD program uh, at Harvard, <laughs> where you actually have to do both degrees, and it's like super crazy intense. <laughs>
0: that is um insane. And
1: yeah, and so I did the first years in med school, and then I went and did my PhD with Fung Zhang, where Jonathan also was, and that's where I. I landed on the CRISPR craze. I, I saw a paper from Bum where he had published on CRISPR-Cas9, like basically these molecular scissors like, that could cut up the genome and program them. And I was like, holy crap, like this thing I was excited about as a kid by like, actually becoming true. And I was like, I want to work in this lab. I want to make programmable tools at the scale of stuff you can't see, right? So you can't see what's going on inside the cell. That was like a lot of the ways people think about these problems, like how to, you know, make a CRISPR tool more efficient or better, or like you know, protein engineering was like a lot of the stuff my parents were doing like, mechanical electrical engineering at this, like, macroscopic scale, working with things you can see, right, that you can uh, manipulate in a machine shop. It was a lot of the same thinking principle, principles, like, at the cellular level, at the atomic level. And so I was like, this is super cool. I have found an engineering framework for, like, a, a very exciting new space that's really changing year by year. Um, and so I got hooked on CRISPR. I got hooked on molecular engineering and protein engineering. Um, and I actually did not finish med school. I was like, I'm just going to do uh, research and like make technologies and maybe make drugs one day uh, for the rest of my life. And that's the path I'm thinking. Maybe in my 40s, I'll be like, shoot, I should have finished med school. Maybe I'll be one of those guys that goes back when they're super old. Uh, but for now, I'm having a really fun time
0: you're not supposed to tell people that your 40s are in the future because that's going to make everybody listening feel just horrible about their life (laughs) you're supposed to say that you're 60 like with with the amount that you've achieved at this point in your life from an objective point of view that's um it's pretty outstanding like oh yeah just a few (laughs) just got my phd from harvard no big deal uh what about you jonathan was there an aha moment uh was there a light bulb moment or was it a gradual exploration
2: yeah i mean so my parents were both doctors, um, so you can see how coming from kind of from a different angle. Sure. Um, so I grew up in Bethesda. I was lucky enough to be, you know, able to do summer research at the National Institutes of Health. So NIH was like two subway stops from a house. Um, so I was, you know, able to kind of see what biology was like, you know, from a pretty early age, um, and you know when you do research, it's sometimes very difficult to think about what am I going to focus on? Because you have to say of all these really cool problems, of all these really difficult things that affect society, what am I going to focus on while I have to kind of ignore everything else? Um, and there's just a lot of cool stuff out there on one hand. On the, on the other hand, there's a lot of pressing problems. And so when I was kind of going through uh, you know high school, I was You know, brainstorming and thinking about, well, how do you actually work on a single scientific problem and do this? And in my lab at NIH, um, my uh, PI, my boss, you know, was working on a a neat assay for uh, looking at kind of how different genes affect the progression of cancer using screening at the time, using this thing called RNA interference. Um, And she kind of opened my eyes that like, you know, these new technologies can make things much more accessible to address many different, uh, approaches. And this is not a new, res, uh, like revelation. Sydney Brenner, you know, a famous scientist has a quote that essentially boils down to, you know, science moves because of the technology and what we can do with it. Um, I agree. Yeah. so I started to think about how technologies could help approach that, how biotechnologies. And so when I came to MIT for undergraduate, uh, research, I thought, well, I could do biological engineering and explore how cool new technologies, these things like synthetic biology and the ability to, you know, start to make different proteins, etc., um, could affect and like push all research forward. And I worked on the a very cool lab doing proteomics using mass spectrometry, which I thought was really awesome. Um, and then the basically everything started to pick up in technology, and this concept of genome editing really started to p- pick up. As I was like trying to evaluate different tools to work on, I explored working on really cool microscopy approaches. But it was about in twenty thirteen that I started to you know actually look for classes. This is in my last year of college, and this professor Feng Zhang had just had this big paper come out on like this cool potential genome editing technology, and he was teaching a seminar. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. It's after registration. I'll write to him. Maybe I'll be able to get in. And he's like, sure. And I show up. It's just nice. three people. Like him. So it was like this really crazy, intimate concept of like, you have one of these you know esteemed people in the field being able to explain how they think about developing tools that can really help everything. And that's really, I think at the time, we didn't even anticipate it. CRISPR became so uh, like ubiquitous that it's showing up in like Hollywood movies, like it's a plot point in Rampage. Um, it's something that everybody knows about that it's really being translated towards medicine, but it also allows researchers to be able to you know, do their science much faster. And this was all kind of in the background of thinking about, well, you know, what are the big impactful problems and aging, of course, you know, longevity, which is many different problems in Canada, but if you can really expand, extend health span, how can you actually impact and improve society um, in many different ways? So, you know, I kind of always had those concepts in, together in my head, but then it started, started to align where these medical treatments like look promising to be able to provide insight into longevity, to be able to treat incurable genetic diseases, and so when Omar and I were starting our lab, and you know, we thought, well, can we like really take this uh, very inspirational and very fast-moving technological development and, and apply it to like an unsolved problem like, or a yet uns- unsolved area, which is you know genetic diseases and aging? Um, so it seems you know in retrospect, it's quite natural that this emergence of these really powerful new approaches, these sci-fi technologies that we keep talking about could be actually uh, applied to something that previously seemed impossible. So it makes us hopeful for, you know, what the next decade, two decades will be in biomedical research because there's many, uh, I think, really amazing things that could come out of it. And I guess one other thing is, you know, more even more recently, other existential risks to the world like climate and sustainability obviously those are pretty All pressing fake. as well so we've been thinking about how we can actually apply our technologies to that as well um because it's you know it's scary out there thinking is, about a lot of things is. so yeah i think it's you know as technology developers as researchers it's our mandate to try to develop these technologies that can help the world and that's really what we're trying to do
0: it is and i think part of my uh, uh, approach with this show and you know interviewing people such as yourself is I think one of the things that technology has shown us, which you have illustrated very well, uh, is that... We don't know what we don't know and that everything can change very rapidly when a certain technological breakthrough occurs. That's the thing. Now, I don't think we should all wait on a Hail Mary approach because there's this belief, I think, in the general human population that, oh, someone somewhere is solving all of the problems. In this case, those someones are you two. (laughs) Someone somewhere is working on cancer. Someone somewhere is fixing uh, sustainability. But not not me and not my life. I just trust. But I think there's danger in that kind of thinking that somebody's going to solve everything. However, I also think there is tremendous upside in the sense that a breakthrough can really change everything in a very short period of time. I mean, even looking at the iPhone, how it changed things, or the invention of the car, how it changed the streets of major cities that were only horses just a few years before. You know, like, it's clear to me that a few things can change everything in a very rapid period of time. And that's what's so exciting. That's what's always drawn me to technology as a concept, is just what can happen, right? I like Blade Runner. I like the fifth element, all of those types of things. So knowing what you know now, what do you think from where you stand is the most exciting thing that has the potential to be the really the biggest game in the shortest, let's say, I don't know, 10 years. What is the most exciting potential game-changing result from all of this?
1: (laughs) it's
2: tough it's tough to say i mean i think that we're starting to really be able to develop medicines that can actually approach these areas that we've had good treatments but not total treatments um that'll have large impacts cancer um is is a big one um i think that now we'll be able to program cells and develop vaccines against cancer so you see that you know Moderna, Pfizer, BioNTech were able to make these programmable vaccines that we talked about yeah. for you know, COVID. And right. now that you know we've kind of proven the concept there, it's crazy. That's, these these companies are now turning to things like, can we make personalized cancer vaccines? I and love so it. these technologies may usher in an additional era of new cancer treatments. There's ideas that we can use these for common diseases like cardiovascular disease. So there's a company actually in town called Verve applying genome editing to cardiovascular disease and can lower like people's lipids by editing their genome. So these things are, you know, very sci-fi, but they're in clinical trials basically now. Um, a- so I think in 10 years, we'll start to see the fruits of those where, you know, genetic diseases are rare. You probably don't know someone with sickle cell or alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency to pick those names up. but. You may and rare disease day was literally yesterday. It's important to be aware of that. But there's also common diseases that may impact people directly. Yeah. It's also just more of a layer out of that. Not just these programmable medicines, but just medicine in general. This concept of obesity management, and you may be familiar with the drugs Ozempic or Semaglutide or Wegovi that are like burning through Hollywood because everyone's on them. Right. Um, those are actually incredibly impactful ways to. Manage appetite and diabetes that have had really like impactful, uh, like outcomes on people's weight, where they're losing 20 30 percent of their weight. So it's kind of crazy that people can just get an injection that okay. helps them manage their weight. So we'll probably see more of those as well. Um, one last one is pain, being able to develop new drugs for pain, Ooh, um, non opioid pain, where obviously the opioid em- epidemic was like terrible to this nation. But new drugs to be able to manage chronic pain, which is an, an outstanding issue, those are also in development. So we're, re- I think are going to see lots of very uh, compelling new biotechnologies and, and medicines coming through in the next 10, 15 years. So That's so I'll awesome. I'll pass it to you, Omar. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I
1: mean, I think I think the ultimate goal here is how do we... There's 7,000 joint diseases, right? and probably millions of pathogenic variants. And so, you know, the big, the big goal of these tools is how do we like actually treat and cure all, all of those variants, all those diseases. And I think that's ultimately what we're all working for, towards. And I think like if in like 20 to 30 years, we can say, you know, majority of these things have been treated, that would be amazing. But I also think there's still a lot of work to do to get there, right? Like, you know, making millions of TNN drugs is probably not going to be the most feasible thing. And so we need approaches that don't just treat mutation by mutation, but actually can replace entire genes and do large-scale replacements in genomes. So you can actually have drugs that are more generalizable and can treat more people um, than mutation that's only like in a hundred patients, right? So I think that's one perspective. I think the other is there are still new technologies that are needed to get these things into the brain or the right cell types in your kidney or the you know whatever the you know right tissue is. I think there's still a lot of work there to make meaningful progress in the seven thousand. Ultimately, you know, it sounds crazy, but like, that's the ultimate outcome here, which is like, you can actually treat 7,000 genetic diseases um, and not have those be a burden on humans.
0: So. That's just incredible. So I have one, one parting question as we approach the end of our time here. Uh, and that is when somebody makes a decision to solve a huge problem or a potentially unsolvable problem. They, let's say they go into academia or they do it outside of academia. How do you prevent the scenario where you're working on something and making no progress for 30 years? Because there are certain types of problems when, when you don't know if something can be solved. A potential outcome is that it can't be solved. Right. How do you keep going in the difficult moments and what propels you forward, even not fully knowing where you're headed at all times?
2: Yeah, no. I mean, it's challenging, but I think with uh, when you take on any like difficult journey, just from a strategic standpoint, you want to be able to digest that into like small parts that seem like they can be conquered. You know, look, you know, to eat an airplane, you have to break it down into those small parts, and then you can actually do that. It's not great for you, but so it's really taking a problem and factoring it down and also learning from those things. So if you try an experiment and you fail and you learn from it, it can direct you new like directions to be able to actually overcome those challenges. So it's really, how do you plan and strategize well? How do you del- make alternative plans that you take that data and just you know, know when to give up on a small subset of something and try a different route? Because these ambitious goals, there's many different ways to attack them and some will fail and some won't. So failing fast, understanding you know which are the best paths and how to iterate these small steps can get you a lot of progress in that direction. As long as you have that plan there, even if you're failing, you're learning. And so you aren't discouraged because you always know there's a next step. You don't want it to be you have no idea what to do. That can be a little bit disheartening. So planning ahead and having the ability to take in that data and then get the alternatives around that, that helps a lot.
1: It's essential.
0: Great insights. What do you think, Omar?
1: Uh yeah, I mean <laughs> it's impossible. Uh, yeah, he's, I, like, he's like, I'm quitting yeah. tomorrow. He's like, this is, yeah. this is a bad uh, time. <laughs> yeah. I think I think John nailed it. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Right. Great comment. So he could have yeah. spoken for both of
0: you. <laughs> Well, that's fabulous. Uh, you know, I can't thank you both enough for sharing your time and wisdom. And obviously you're doing some incredible stuff. So if people want to follow along with your work, where can they find you? Where can they follow along with what you're up to?
1: Yeah, so uh, you know, we have a lab website, above lab.org. Um we have a lot of you know, our publication and research on there. I would also say follow us on Twitter. Uh, we post really long tutorials about papers that we have come out where we you know give Sort of an inside scoop about the motivation and kind of the story behind the work and kind of give a high level view um, of what's going on every time kind of paper is published. You can also scroll through and find our old, old tutorials online about, you know, papers over the past, you know, many years um, too. So, i am say those are the best ways. Our emails are also online, so I also encourage anyone to feel free to reach out and, you know, if you ever want to just talk about research or, um, you know, whatever, just, you know, we're, we're available.
0: Well, that's fabulous that's a great way to wrap it up and you know here's hoping that you don't become the next theranos i'm I'm (laughs) trusting that you're both ethical Uh, i'm just kidding But, (laughs) but no it's been an absolute honor thanks again for sharing and for what you do and for what you're up to and you know may we all may all the random idiots in the world such as myself benefit greatly from your work in the next 50 years that would be just incredible and i look forward to following your your work very closely so again thank you and uh With that, the official podcast is over. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Beat the Off Path podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes we've shared, it would mean a great deal to me if you subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice or on YouTube. And of course, if you shared either the show itself or this particular episode with somebody who might wanna hear it to help us grow the audience for the show, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. So if you've been a passive listener all this time, I get it, I understand, there's no big deal with that. But it would really, really mean a lot to me if you'd leave a positive review and help me grow this show. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.